Welcome to the Grace Vineyard Podcast, where we are building growing communities of worshipers who are becoming like Christ, empowered to do His work. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. What a joy uh, to be with you again. Uh, this is, uh, I think, my third or fourth time getting to speak to the Grace Vineyard community, and it's just, it's just always so good. I love uh, I live all the way, my wife and I uh, live all the way down in Imperial Beach, so we drive up the coast, but just coming into Oceanside, it's always so beautiful, and it always feels so peaceful here. Uh, just a little bit about myself, I uh, started attending Vineyard Churches in 1998, shortly after John Wimber passed away, actually, um, served in various capacities at a Vineyard Church in Connecticut, where my wife and I are both from, and then ended up, uh, hey, New Englander, and then... Um, Ended up be, uh, getting ordained in the vineyard in 2007 and became a full-time chaplain in the United States Navy in 2008. Uh, Navy chaplains, as many of you probably know, don't just serve with the Navy itself. We also serve with the Marines and the Coast Guard. So I spent uh, three years with 2nd Marine Division at a Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, deployed with those folks in 2008 into 2009. Then I came here to San Diego and was on two different ships. Uh, deployed with those uh, folks out to Japan and Korea, then uh, did a staff tour, and then uh, served at the Coast Guard for three years. That was really fun, uh, working with Coast Guardsmen up and down California, and uh, got to do Hurricane Maria and Irma relief with that team in 2017, if you remember uh, the hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And then uh, have been recently, the last two and a half years, a little more, more than that, on board the USS Abraham Lincoln throughout the time of COVID, and um, then we deployed at the early part of this year, just barely returned about two weeks ago from deployment. So six, six months away from my lovely bride. She's very happy. I'm very happy. It's great to be back, and uh, that was a long time to be away from home, but super excited. It's hard coming back. We're getting ready to move. Uh, the Navy is going to relocate us all the way across the ocean to the island of Guam. We'll be there for three years serving. So that's really exciting. Uh, I've only been very briefly, but we're really excited about the next phase of ministry for us. Uh, it's interesting when you're moving, so many of the things that you're used to aren't where they're supposed to be. Uh, so if you see this little band-aid on my finger, I kind of scalped my finger the other day because my brain was somewhere else not really thinking about what I was doing, and I closed the door on my own finger. But I'm okay. I'll survive. I know you're worried. Uh, and you can pray for me later. Maybe God will miraculously heal the skin on the top of my finger. One of the greatest things about deployment, but also one of the hardest things, is to be away from your family and friends. You're away from that church community that you are used to supporting your faith. And um, what, I, what was one of the most amazing things that I saw God do on the ship, though, was to build a chapel community while we were deployed. And to see people come from all over, all these different Christian churches. There were, there were Episcopalians and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Methodists and, and Baptists and Pentecostals and Charismatics, and they all came together into this chapel and became a new community for this time that we were deployed. And we worshiped together every week, and we had Bible studies, and we had classes. And God brought us together for that season, for that time. Um, and I think that there are, we all of us have probably experienced seasons where the churches will grow or they'll change or they'll develop, and it really feels really special when God brings a community together, builds it up, and it really can impact our entire lives for the rest of our lives oftentimes. 
I've now departed the Abraham Lincoln, and we're getting ready to move, as I said, but the Abraham Lincoln Chapel will continue. There'll be new leaders, there'll be new worship leaders, there'll be new attendees, but that season, that ministry will continue even though I've moved on. I think uh, communities like the Abraham Lincoln Chapel, like Grace Vineyard, uh, and, and church communities all around the world have really struggled over the last few years. We've probably talked about that, heard a lot about that, but it's really been a challenge for communities to come back together after the challenges of the global pandemic of the last couple of years. Uh, it's a famous book from more than 20 years ago now. This Harvard uh, sociologist named Robert Putnam wrote this book called Bowling Alone. And he talks about how in America in the 50s and 60s, people were parts of all sorts of civic organizations. They were part of church groups. They were part of sewing circles, the Boy Scouts, bowling leagues, you know, all these sorts of things. But that over time, that all started to fade and people became less connected to the communities around them, became less connected through civic organizations and social organizations. And so now instead of being part of a bowling league, now all of us are just sort of metaphorically bowling alone. A lot of us have, you know, maybe social media presences, and those are a kind of community. Those can actually be great. Many of us may have, I don't know, thousands of followers on, on TikTok or Instagram, but, but it's hard to identify who our best friend is. We don't have anyone to call if we need a babysitter. We have no one to organize a dinner for us when a loved one dies. We don't know who to call to help us pack when we're getting ready to move. And I ask you to think about who you would call in those moments. For many of us, the closest people that we get to are maybe our work colleagues, or maybe a family member close by if we're blessed to have family in the neighborhood. But for a surprisingly large number of people, church communities are not part of those people that you'd call to babysit your kids or to make you a meal if a loved one dies or to help you move. Because for a whole series of reasons that are, it's not about this community, it's not even about the vineyard, but just about the church in America generally, our communities, our church communities, are not always that close. And a lot of that, a lot of that writing, a lot of that research even comes out before COVID when most of us spent the better part of two years attending church virtually through a screen with minimal chance to build and deepen those relationships, to share our gifts with the community, to serve. And so the overarching theme and question that I want us to address today as we open God's Word is how does God build His community? How does He rebuild His community? How does He restore His community? How does He rejuvenate His community? From a group of strangers to a community defined by love. Because all throughout the Bible we see passages like the one that Jesus says in John's Gospel when He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so here's the question that I have for you today. How many people, apart from your family or maybe a significant other, would you really say that you love? Would you really say that you love? And today I want us to look at a biblical figure who helped build up a community after it had been similarly devastated in a way that we might recognize in the modern world. If you have your Bible... Or if you have a Bible app, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It's before Psalms. It's kind of right before Esther, if you know your way around the Bible, maybe about a third of the way through. 
And if you remember your biblical history, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. God called them out miraculously through the Exodus. He led them through the wilderness for years and years, and then he brought them into the promised land. And in the promised land, in the early years, they were led by judges. And then eventually the people said, no, we, we, we want to be more like the nations around us. We want a king. And so God, uh, in his mercy, acquiesced to that and lifted up kings. And there was King Saul, there was King David, there was King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, Solomon's descendants, the nation of Israel was split. And if you remember your history, there, there were ten tribes in the north that were led out of Samaria... And those ten tribes became what became known as the nation of Israel. And then there were two tribes in the south, uh, led by Judah and Benjamin. Their capital was in uh, um, uh, Jerusalem. Excuse me. Sorry, I had a moment there. And um, they were in the south. And so you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And at the end of the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, the people of the northern kingdom are conquered by the Assyrians. So those ten tribes are conquered by the Assyrian um, empire and taken away into exile. And then a number of years later, actually more than a hundred years later, the southern kingdom is conquered by the nation of Babylon and taken off also into exile. Most of the people are taken into exile. That's where we get the stories of Daniel and Esther <clears throat> and many of the prophets, including like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, is all happening around that time. The nation of uh, Israel has been conquered by the Assyrians nation of Judah has been conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile. And then beginning, starting about 50 years later, in about 538 B.C., there's a beginning of a return from exile. People are beginning to come back because of some changes in the administration of Babylon and some, uh, some other things we'll talk about. So a group of people begin to return back. And they have this desire to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem's walls, and to reconstitute a community in Judah. Because like for us, for the people of Israel, for the, for the Israelites, exile is not the end of the story. And I think for a lot of us, it's felt a little bit like we've been in exile these last couple of years. And I want to tell you that God, for us, for his church, for his bride, just as for the people of Israel, conquering in exile was not the end of the story. There was more of salvation history still to come. And there was more to that promise that had yet to be fulfilled. And so they come back and they begin to reconstitute this community in Judah. And, and the book of Nehemiah actually begins even later than that, about 445 BCE, roughly, after two waves of exiles have already left the, the Persian Empire and come back to Judah. And now Judah, uh, around, the, around the Jerusalem, is this small little province in the vast Persian Empire, facing a lot of opposition Internally, externally, it's under competition. If you know, of course, you know where Israel sits. It's always in competition from nations to the south and nations to the north and the east. And it's interesting, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts have both Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. So if you're interested in reading this later, a little bit more in depth, take some time and read uh, both Ezra and Nehemiah together. But we're going to start right at the beginning of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read uh, in the English Standard Version. If you have your own uh, Bible, you're welcome to follow along in whatever translation you have. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. I want to stop right there. The remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Nehemiah hears about his homeland, his people, his community, and the news is not good. Two waves of exiles have already returned, but the community is still broken down. It's still fragmented. It's still vulnerable to attack. They've made it back home, but it's nothing like what it used to be when Solomon's temple was there in all of its splendor. Does this sound familiar? Can you see a little bit of our church's story in that story? Like maybe we found ourselves when we returned to communities from being far away, whether it's from a deployment like me or from COVID, from moving back. The community's just not the same sometimes when you go back. Things have changed. And the walls remain torn down. Nehemiah cares about this community. And in fact, in verse 4 it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As long as the walls remain torn down, the community can never flourish. The defenses are down. It's vulnerable. And notice how in verse 3 it says there was great trouble and shame. Trouble because the community is vulnerable to attack, right? It's, it's vulnerable to invasion from outsiders and shame because they couldn't even get the community together. They couldn't even motivate the people enough to get them to rebuild the community and reconstitute it. And Nehemiah is in a similar position that many of us face as we look around to the Christian communities here in San Diego and around California and around our nation, looking for how do we rebuild a community? How do we restore it? How do we rejuvenate it? And if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, my first note is I think we should start where Nehemiah started, with prayer. You see that? When he gets the message, he starts with prayer. Now, this may sound obvious, right? We start with prayer as Christians. That's pretty common, or maybe not. Maybe not. In fact, prayer may seem like the easy button, but honestly, you could start to ask the question, well, what does my personal conversation with God, my time alone, have to do with rebuilding a community? Especially if we think of prayer as something we do when when we have a personal need or when our hearts are heavy with personal cares. But prayer is that conversation with God, the one who created us, the one who redeemed us, the one who loves us. And if we're going to be part of the solution to bringing communities back together, bringing communities back to life, we have to begin by seeking God's face, by seeking deeper community, by praying for it, by asking for friendships and the ways, asking God for ways to share our gifts with the community. And not just prayer, do you see that? But prayer and fasting. Do you see that Nehemiah does both? Fasting is a common way in the Bible to seek the heart of God. Fasting is a, kind of a deliberate, temporary, 
abstention from food. We're not going to eat. It's not a diet, right? It's not like you're just eating less, at least not in the way that the Bible talks about it. It could be an expression of remorse for wrongdoing. Sometimes when people did something wrong in the Bible, they would fast. Uh, King David did that. It could be a spiritual discipline meant to help people focus more on spiritual matters. If you remember Jesus, when he goes out into the wilderness, right, the beginning of his ministry, he fasts for 40 days to seek the heart of God for the ministry that he's about to undertake. Fasting is like a total abstention um, from food for a particular period of time to seek God's heart. And so fasting and prayer and weeping and mourning driving is what's driving Nehemiah's plea for the rebuilding of God's community and the rebuilding of God's chosen people. And in chapter 2, as you see the story progress, Nehemiah comes to the king. After he's fasted and prayer, prayed, he comes to the king and he asks if he can return to Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verse 5, Nehemiah writes, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, if you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Once he's prayed, once he's sought the heart of God, he begins to build out a plan. He says, I need to get back there to help. It's not enough for me just to be here in Susa or in Babylon. I've got to get back there and lend my hand to the work of God for the rebuilding of the community of God. And Nehemiah is able to secure passage. And he even gets wood from the king's forest to help rebuild the walls. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, it says, So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Once Nehemiah has prayed and he, saw, and he fasted and he sought the heart of God, he begins to put together a plan, and the next most important thing that he does, and this is maybe note number two if you're a note kind of taker kind of person, is he shows up. He shows up. He says, I'm not just going to do it from afar. I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to see it with my own hands. He traveled all the way to Jerusalem. And if you, if you know your, 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 your geography, right, he's coming all the way from modern-day Iraq, kind of in the eastern part of Iraq, almost into, into what's modern-day Iran, all the way across down into where Jerusalem is. It's a long trip. would have taken weeks, maybe months. And he even goes out at night to inspect the walls broken down. He wants to see it for himself. One of the most important things we can do for community, my friends, to help restore it, to help build it up, is to show up. Is to physically be there. When we come to God, when we come to Jesus Christ, when we come to the church, we bring our time, we bring our talents, we bring our treasure. Have you heard that before? When we come to worship God, we bring our time, we bring our talents, and we bring our treasure. Church isn't principally the place where we come to receive. It can be that, and God, of course, speaks us and meets to us, meets us and, and ministers to us. But it's the place where we come to meet not only with the God of the universe, but to meet with his bride, the church. Right? We cannot fully love God if we do not love the bride. 
and the bride is the church. Pastors are famous for saying that the church would be so awesome if it wasn't for all those people. <laughs> you know, which is probably true. But yet, it is still the bride of Christ. And so we show up. It's the place where we come to serve, to be prepared to serve the world and to serve others outside the church. Right? It's, it's, this is the huddle where we come together as a team and we, we, we figure out what it is we're going to do when we break the huddle and we go out onto the field and we're going to execute the plan for the, for the glory of the city, for the glory of the town, for the glory of the state and the nation. But we don't go out by ourselves, right? You don't, you don't huddle by yourself if you're a football team. You huddle with your, your teammates and you go out onto the field in confidence because you know you're being backed up by folks who have your back to help execute the plan. Teddy Roosevelt famously said that the credit goes to the one who is in the arena. It's not about winning or losing. It's not about, it's not about the victories or defeat. The credit goes to the one who shows up, who's there to fight the fight. The writer of Hebrews sums this up uh, nicely. You don't have to turn there, but in, in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You notice the progression? The right gospel leads to love and good deeds, which leads to meeting together and encouraging one another. It's a flow. It's all connected. If you miss one link in the chain, the whole thing starts to fall apart. And look, I know I'm preaching to the choir today. You're all here. You've all showed up. And, and I'm not even trying to denigrate those who weren't able to be here today. In fact, I think it's absolutely possible to learn and grow from things like Facebook and Zoom and, 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 and podcasts and things like that. I love that. I love listening to sermons on podcasts. And, and I'm so grateful for those who are able to, to, to view the service remotely. Nothing against all of that. But by itself, it's incomplete. If that's all there is, it's incomplete. Now, of course, if you're sick or if you're, if you're unable to come, then please, you know, in, stay home, enjoy, you know, worship with us. But look forward to the day when you can be here in person. Look forward to the day when you could show up. And one of the things that I want to, to challenge you with today is what's the next step of plugging in? What's the next step of going deeper with the community? What's the next step of getting to know those people who, who can be the people you call when you need? Maybe it's, maybe it's showing up a little earlier, leaving a little bit later. Maybe it's finding a way to volunteer, maybe with the kids or the youth group or the, the amazing music team or getting involved in outreach or, or coming early and helping set up. Maybe it's coming to get connected with a small group during the week or one of those amazing events that they have to share your heart and learn about God together, to be vulnerable as you are challenged to grow. And from there, we begin to take our faith public from the community, not as solo artists, but as as a team, as a team. And that's what Nehemiah did. He took his plan, 
his calling for the community of God, and he took it public. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Then I said to them, that's the leaders of this discouraged city, he said, You see the trouble that we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of God, of the hand of my God that had been on me for good, and also of the words the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Do you see what happens when there's a vision? Do you see what happens when people pray and they come together and they show up and they, they, they can start to inspire people? And when that vision comes... People's hands are strengthened for the good work, and they begin to say things like, let us rise up and build. And sometimes all it takes is one person to transform an entire congregation, to transform an entire community, to transform an entire city for the gospel. Remember, these exiles had returned. They'd been there for decades, but yet they hadn't had the energy, the vision, the focus to actually rebuild. It seems kind of like they'd given up, doesn't it? And I'm sure we've all found ourselves at different times and in different communities over the years where, oh, yeah, sure, there are tasks we can complete, there are jobs we can do, but sometimes it feels like we're banging our heads against a wall. So we just accommodate ourselves to what's possible, to what we think is possible. And we stop praying for God to do the miraculous, transforming work to transform a community from a group of strangers into a community of love. It took someone who'd been in prayer. It took someone who was willing to show up to motivate this group to come together. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Notice that Nehemiah didn't have to do all the work himself. He didn't have to physically do it all himself. He was just that fresh set of eyes, you know, that fresh energy that says, with God's help, this is possible. We can really do this. If you, uh, I, I'm not much of a chemist. I don't know much about science, but I understand that when, when different chemicals come together, sometimes you need enough of them to have what's called a critical mass. That you can have two chemicals that would otherwise react, but if there's not enough of them, the reaction won't take place. But when you get enough of them that comes together, the reaction begins to take place and the transformation begins to happen. Sometimes all it takes as a community is for there just to be that critical mass that allows the transformation to begin to take place. What Nehemiah was doing was generating that spark that brought the community together for a common purpose. And uh, centuries after the Bible was written, in fact, uh, uh, just even a few decades ago, Social, secular psychologists came along and social scientists came along and they, they called it social cohesion or social capital. They're, they're, they're related concepts, but the idea is what is it that causes a community to come together and what do the members of that community have that gets contributed to the whole? Uh, I talked a little bit at the beginning about that book, Bowling Alone, uh, and, and social cohesion is this idea of the connection among individuals that creates the real network that binds people together. And there's a, there's a pattern that it shows all throughout. And it starts with 
familiarity, right? In other words, people go from being strangers to being familiar. I don't quite know your name, but I recognize your face, right? I'm, I'm familiar. You go from stranger to familiarity. From familiarity, you begin to go to communication. The idea being that once you become familiar with someone, you begin to have a dialogue with them and begin to exchange things. And from there, you start to build trust. And from trust, you start to build respect. And from respect, you start to build loyalty. And from loyalty, you start to build love. This, this, this dynamic is something that social psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists see repeated in communities the world over without ever having necessarily read the Bible. They see the exact pattern that's demonstrated in faithful communities throughout Scripture. It's described perfectly. And this is what good leaders do. If you're a leader, you're working to build that healthy community wherever you are. Familiarity to communication, communication to trust, to respect, to loyalty, to love. Now, interestingly, if you are a leader, think about maybe if you're a leader in your workplace, if you're a leader of any other kind, of, of all those words, familiarity, communication, trust, respect, loyalty, love, which one feels a little bit different than the others? To me, it's love. Because when I think about the people that I lead, I don't always necessarily think about love. That feels a little squishy to me. You know, communication, yeah. Trust, absolutely. Respect, oh yeah, want respect. Loyalty, yeah, I want people that I work with to be loyal. But love, that's interesting. So I come back to you to the question that I asked at the very beginning. How many people, apart from your immediate family or some kind of significant other, can you really say that you love? Yet how often does the Bible say something like, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against this there is no law. How often does the Bible say something like, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why does the Bible keep talking about love if that's not the emotion we most often feel when we're together? There's so much more there. There's so much more there. Love is what even secular social scientists say is the most important, the deepest, the depth that brings a community together. Those actions, those consistent actions. Nehemiah brings this group of people together. He's prayed, he showed up. He's catalyzed them into action. They're ready to build. But sadly, as the story progresses, we see it's not all smooth sailing for Nehemiah. And in chapter 4, well, actually all throughout, but really in chapter 4, you start to see some opposition that comes along, some opposition that he faces. Even after he's gathered the people together with a vision, and in chapter 4, verse 7, we see two of the people that are involved in opposing him. It says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard 
that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our guard, our God, and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Rebuilding community, friends, is not all excitement and vision and motivation. It's not all kumbaya. If you've ever seen a tight-knit community, you know that it can be really, really hard. If you've ever been part of a tight-knit community, you know it's not all easy. There was opposition for Nehemiah, and it required some, some defensive measures to protect the project that the Lord was about in this community. And yet when we read the story, we see that Nehemiah doesn't shy away from that. He doesn't shy away from protecting the work that the Lord is about. He doesn't say, well, God's got it. I'm not going to worry about it. He says, we're going to pray and we're going to set a guard. There's a, there's a phrase that I love and it can be misunderstood, but I think it's helpful. It says, pray like it all depends on God, work like it all depends on you. You heard that? Pray like it all depends on God, work like it all depends on you. Now, really, in the end, of course, it all does depend on God. He's the author of everything. But that doesn't mean that we're passive in the face of challenge. Right? Nehemiah says, we're going to go back to the Lord in prayer to make sure we haven't missed it, and we're going to set a guard, and the work is going to keep going. And if you read the story, you see that they even had to slow down a little bit. At the beginning, everybody was able to do the building, but after a while, they had to say, okay, half of you, you guys, you're the guards, you half are the builders. And so it slows down a little bit, but Nehemiah says, this is too important. And we're going to have to set some defensive measures in place. He had to be smart. He had to be courageous. He had to slow down the broader work for the overall goal. And sometimes, sometimes when we think about rebuilding community, we want it to be better right now. We want the community to be healthier right now. But we have to think long term. The goal of rebuilding, rejuvenating, reestablishing community isn't about next week. It's not even about next month. It's about next year and the next decade. And for those of you who've been around for a while, you know that a life of faith is a long obedience in the same direction. It's faithfulness that determines the health of community over time. Like a farmer planting seeds... Sometimes we plant seeds we never get to harvest. You may, be, you may be called to plant a seed in this community or wherever you lead that the fruit of that seed will not even be in your lifetime or in your lifetime in this community. And yet God is still calling you to faithfully help make that community a healthier place to be. Uh, there's so much here, and I wish I had time to get into all of it. There's intense opposition from, from people in the land. The people that we mentioned here, Tobias and Sanballat, they are what eventually become known in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Sanballat is mentioned in other historical documents as basically being like the mayor of Samaria, or kind of like the governor of the Samaria region. But there, not everybody who goes, uh, when, when Jerusalem is conquered, not everybody goes to Babylon. Some people were left behind, and those people begin to intermarry 
with the, the communities around and their worship of God starts to get diluted and, and starts to change. And, and so this is the group that's now opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. It's hard to tell exactly what they're worried about, but maybe they're worried about their prestige getting lowered when Jerusalem comes back to prominence. But they're, they're not part of the community, but they're not really outsiders either. Do you see that? Like they understand about the worship of God, but they just do it a little bit differently. And doesn't sometimes the greatest hurt when we're trying to rebuild community come from the people who should have been on our side? Doesn't it sometimes feel like the hardest thing is the people that should be working with us, but for some reason it feels like they're working against us? That can cut us the deepest. And when the people begin to fall into sin again and again, Ezra, uh, uh, Nehemiah rather calls the prophet Ezra to read from the law of God. And he gathers all the people together. If you, if you get a chance later, read chapters 8 and 9. And when the word of God is proclaimed, it breaks the heart of the people. And it brings them to repentance and it brings them back to the true worship of God. That's kind of my last note, is that when it starts to fall apart, whether it's because of external opposition or internal pressure or fighting or sin, no matter what, always come back to the Word of God. Always come back to the Word of God. God is so faithful to speak to us. He speaks to us through prayer. He speaks to us through worship. He speaks to us through, through ministry. We can always, always, always have confidence that God will speak to us through his word. No matter how, uh, how, how tense it gets, no matter when everything feels like it starts to fall apart, that's where we come back to. This is what the Apostle Paul calls the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, that powerful, unchanging, inerrant truth that God declares to be living and active, more powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The people of God aren't ultimately about the, the community of God is not about the community in itself. It is about being a community that points other people to God. This is the difference between a church and a civic organization. My goal of rebuilding community isn't just so that we can have more friends. Yes, it is that, but it's not just so that we can have more friends. It's not just so that we can have somebody to babysit our kids or to help us move or to make us a meal. That's nice. But ultimately... The community of God is about being the bride of Christ. It's about pointing people back to the true worship of spirit and in truth. And when it all comes together, that powerful chemical reaction called the body of Christ begins to move, and the church, it begins to grow, and this sleeping giant begins to rise up in power, filled with the flame of the Holy Spirit, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it begins to proclaim that, not just in here, but out there. Right? Out there in your workplaces, in your homes, in your communities, in your schools, wherever you are, that's what it's about. We want a strong community so that we can have that empowerment to step out and be the people of God to a world in need. 
but it has to be lived. It has to be done in love. It has to be a visible, visible, tangible, incarnate reminder of that suffering servant, that conquering king, that Messiah, the one who was the word at the beginning who calls us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And we see it. We see it here in Nehemiah, but we see it all through Scripture. That famous passage that, that if you've been around the church for a while, especially around vineyard churches, you've probably heard is in Acts chapter 2. At the beginning of Acts chapter 2, do you guys remember what happens at the beginning of Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit falls, and God brings the people together. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, it talks about what that community looks like. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles'. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to any who had need. And day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. That's what I want this community to look like. That's what I want churches to begin to look like again, where there's teaching. Did you see there's teaching? And then there's fellowship, and then there's miracles, and then there's caring for one another, and then there's worshiping together and and preaching the gospel and opening their homes, and then praising God and having favor with all the people. And then the Lord will add daily to the number of those who are being saved. A church like this, a church like the one around the corner or the one on the other side of town, it doesn't just need a single Nehemiah. It needs hundreds of Nehemiahs. Thousands of Nehemiahs are what are needed in San Diego. The kind of people who will have the sort of vision to say, the walls are broken down. The people are in disrepair. The worship of God is not happening. But God, I'm going to come to you with prayer and fasting. Give me a vision. Give me favor so that the rebuilding can begin. The kind of people who will say, God, will you send me so I can show up and I will go and I will build. If, uh, if the ministry team would come on up and also maybe somebody from the worship team, please. There are needs throughout this congregation, needs throughout this city, needs in your families that are available to receive prayer from Almighty God this morning. But part of what I hope that God will be speaking to you and you may seek ministry for is, what's my next step to rebuild this community? Maybe your next step is just coming up and getting prayer from somebody, somebody that you don't know, or that, or that to kind of deepen that relationship. But my question for you guys is, what is the next step to rebuilding and strengthening that community. And so as the worship team plays, and I'll come down here as well if anybody would like prayer, but I'd like for you to seek prayer for that. And if there are other needs as well, things that are on your heart, come and get prayer. Church, church isn't over when the songs have been sung. Church isn't over when the, when the scripture has been read. Church is only over when the people of God have met with God, heard from God, received from God and been transformed by God. 
So let's take some time in prayer, in reflection, in ministry to seek what God is calling for you to do. We hope you've enjoyed this message. This weekly podcast is available on our website, gracevcf.org, where you can learn more about Grace Vineyard and our vision for people everywhere to know and worship God.